God's love makes you want to change. Okay, God's love makes you want to change. Now, this series has been about different kinds of relationships and different aspects of love. And today, we're going to look at the, one of the more difficult aspects of love as the Bible talks about it. Loving others even when there's confrontation or conflict in that relationship. You know, love is a very difficult concept for us. It's a, it's a sloppy word in English. It's, it's poorly defined in our culture, and I think even more poorly understood. We use it mostly just to describe a feeling that happens to us, right? Like I fell in love, or I'm, I'm in love, and we fall in love with somebody, and it's so sweet, and the little birds fly around, and stuff like that, and it's warm fuzzies, and all that kind of stuff, and, and then later, we might come to a point in our life, where we say, well, I just, I just fell out of love, as though that is even possible, and so we use love as this, as this kind of um, weird term, this sloppy word that we never really know what we're actually talking about. But the Greeks had multiple words for love. And most of the New Testament, though was spoken in um, Aramaic, Hebrew or Aramaic, was then translated or written by the apostles in Greek. And so the Greeks had multiple words for love. There were three main words that the Greeks used for, for love. And we're not going to get into that uh, this morning because you know I'm not super uh, scholarly. Let me just throw them out to you. The three words that the Greeks used were agape, eros, and phileo. So um, eros you, you know, is where we get the word erotic, so that gives you an idea of what they were talking about uh, when they used that word. And phileo is the, is the word like Philadelphia comes from this Greek word, the city of brotherly love. And so phileo was this kind of love between brothers, this mutual kind of back and forth love. However, when these three words were translated into English, they were given one word. So all three of those concepts were translated into one word, love. And it's used for each. Which then, as we read the Bible, gives us a really twisted uh, view of love as we try to understand what is God really talking about. See, the way most often uh, understood, we most often understand love is actually the Greek words I said, uh, eros, which is this erotic love. Eros is a passionate type of love. Eros is used almost exclusively in the Bible for a marriage relationship and the intimacy that happens within that marriage covenant. But when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, if we use the same word love there in both of those, you might get the feeling or the sense that God, uh, Jesus wants you to, to kiss your enemy instead of killing them, which might be a good idea. I, I don't know the circumstances, um, but see if we have a different understanding of what love means, we get that confused. What, what is God really telling us to do? So... Um, you don't have to look around too much to see that we've gotten this word and this concept of love really twisted up. So I want you to think about these um, three questions. You don't have to answer them out loud, okay? But just kind of in your mind, answer these uh, three questions as they, as they come up. And I'm going to help you a little bit. The first question is this, what is love? 
What is love? Can you even um, define that? Can you break that down and say what it is? Like some people would say that love is a feeling. Some would say that, that love, no, love is an action. And so the things that I do uh, really define love. Some would say it, it, love is different for everybody, right? It's just, it's how you define it and it's what you think it is. And, and, and if we go with that understanding of love, this is what happens. Two people meet, they fall in love, okay? And, and one of them has a view of love that that's, means one thing, and one of them has a view of love that means something else, but they're both saying, I love you. And each of them thinks the other one is speaking their language, but they're not. And then after a while, they start to find out, wait a minute, I don't think he loves me the way I thought he did. Wait a minute, she's not acting the way that I thought she was. She's not doing the things that I thought she was going to do. And then we go, oh, maybe they don't love me. Or maybe we're not in love anymore. Because we have different views and different understandings of love. How about this question? How long does love last? How long does love love last? Well, um, maybe you, you had parents or something that got married and then they were you know, married for 70 years until they passed away or something. Some might say that, that love is supposed to last forever and yet um, most of us would have to admit that it doesn't. Right, That feeling of love doesn't last forever. And so what we thought was love in the beginning, we find out uh, years later sometimes, we go, well, maybe that wasn't love. And, and then we talk about this idea of I fell out of love. What about this one? Um, is love just another word for sex? Sometimes it is, right? Sometimes we use it that way. Um, look, uh, maybe, maybe you heard this. Uh, going, well, if you love me, you would. Because is that really loved? Are those things con connected? And, and how are they connected? And so since love is defined differently by each person, how can we have a real conversation about love? At the beginning of this series, we talked about the way God loves and said that his love was not rational, but it was logical. That God's love isn't rational, but it is logical. And so God's love isn't dependent on our behavior. That's why it's irrational. He always loves us. But his love is ordered, it's defined, and it's consistent. And so we can count on that. We know what to expect from his love. And then in the second week, we talked about friendship and how Jesus was a friend to everybody. And we said that people matter, and so how we treat people matters. And so there's this love relationship between us and other people. Not the eros kind of love, and really not the agape kind of love, but the phileo kind of love, this brotherly love that we're supposed to have for everybody. Today, we're going to go a step further and talk about those who might be our friends but at times could also qualify as our enemies, those that we're in conflict with. And, and here's what we're going to learn about the kind of love we ought to have. Love does what I don't want to do. Love does what I don't want to do. And, and maybe you could use this in, in your own life. If there's any point in your life and your relationships or whatever where there's something and you go, I don't want to do that, there's a good chance that if you did it, you might be expressing love to that person. Isn't that awkward the way that works? Okay. 
Before we get into Matthew chapter 12, which is where we're going to find the actual story that we'll look at today, it's important for us to know what led up to this meeting between a religious leader and Jesus. And so we're going to look at that in um, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be, beginning in verse 28. But, but here's a little background. Now, I said in the giving talk that Jesus has entered the temple He's found the priests there um, selling animals for the sacrifices, exchanging money, extorting from the people. He got angry about that because the, the house of God, the temple of God, was supposed to be this house of prayer, he called it. And so he drove all the priests out of the temple, the guys who run the temple, right? He drove them out of the temple and then began to teach the people. Now, the priests, you can imagine, were pretty upset about this. They were not happy at all that, that Jesus did this. And so a group of them, a rather large group of them, religious leaders and, and others uh, in chapter 11, they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. And, and it, you really got to understand what's going on. They come in and they go, who gave you authority to drive these people out of the temple? Now, if you're a religious leader, you're a priest, you are um, called or ordained by God to run the temple, that might be a pretty good question, right? Like, you drove us out, like, we run the temple, who are you to tell us we can't be in here? And that's the kind of tone that these guys used with Jesus. Who gave you the authority? Who told you you could do this? And they came in a very large group with a show of force to Jesus. They're like, we're going to stand up to this guy. Well, Jesus has this interaction with them, and, and he just completely shuts them down. In fact, they leave Jesus kind of with their tails between their legs. They're afraid of the crowd. They're like, man, this guy's uh, like, we can't answer him. And so they leave. And then they send a smaller group of, of people, and they come to Jesus and, and it was uh, Pharisees and Herodians uh, that come. It's kind of like uh, if one of our political parties and a group of lobbyists came to you and said, you should stop doing this. That's kind of what happened. So the Pharisees and these lobbyist people came to Jesus and, and they asked him more questions to try and trap him and catch him in his words. And he stumps them again and their tail between their legs, they leave. And then another group of people, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus. And maybe if you were in VBS or you went to a church when you were a little kid, you sang the song about Pharisees and Sadducees. Anybody ever sing that song? I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. Because a Sadducee is sad, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee. It's a really stupid song. Uh, but we sang it all the time and it helped you remember the Sadducees didn't believe that there was any resurrection and once you, you were died, you were just dead. That was it. You just like disappeared. And, and so they, they were sad all the time because there was no hope for them in the future. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him this question about what happens when you die, which is silly because they believe once you die, you're just dead. And so they tried to trap him again, and, and Jesus stumps them, and he sends them off, and they run away. So we have, over the course of a couple days, three different times, three different groups of religious leaders, uh, Pharisees, which is a religious sect uh, of the Jews, the Sadducees, another religious sect, coming to Jesus with the intent of trapping him, of, of catching him in what he said so that they could use it against him. Now, here's the goal of what they were doing. The religious leaders hated Jesus. 
All the people loved him, right? Because he was healing the sick and he was causing the blind to see. He was doing all these things. They loved the fact that he drove the religious leaders out of the temple. Um, they loved him. He was like the people's a grassroots kind of thing. But the religious leaders in the establishment hated him. And so they'd come to try and trick him so that they might use his words against him and eventually prison him and kill him. Okay, that was their goal. Of course, we know the story that they actually succeeded in that, but not yet. Okay, it wasn't his time yet. And so they're just still trying to trick him and to catch him. So Jesus is in this point where he's in hostile territory. Like he knows in just a few days he's going to give himself up and they're going to kill him on the cross. Okay, like we're at the end of Jesus' life in the story here. And so all of the religious leaders, all of the Romans, um, everybody would kind of like just hated him. Everybody in power hated him. All the people who didn't have any power loved him. So we come to this point where he's in Jerusalem with a small band of followers. There's hundreds of thousands of people who had packed the city for Passover, uh, one of the festivals of the Jewish people where they all come back home Every political and social entity was out to shut him up at this point. And so every day that he goes back into Jerusalem, he, he's like, this could be the day. Like, they could get me today. This was a really difficult situation. And, and at this point, like, I'm thinking if I'm Jesus, like, I'm fed up, right? I'm like, I've been, doing, I've been preaching, I've been healing people, I've been doing good things for about three years now, and all you do is try and trick me and try and catch me, and all you want to do is kill me. Like, I'm fed up. I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. And now we get to chapter 12 in the book of Mark, verse 28. So all of this has happened, and then we get to this point, where it says in verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Okay, so, so one of the people that is hostile toward Jesus, one of his enemies in this situation, has heard what's going on. He's, he's probably been with at least one of the groups of people who have come and, and tried to catch Jesus in his words. He's heard them debating, and it says he noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer and so he comes back later to Jesus and he asks this question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this sounds like an honest question, right? But you've you got to recognize that, that he's part of the group that wants to kill Jesus. And so this isn't, this isn't some little simple question that he's asking, especially when you understand what he's really asking. See, there were 611 laws given by Moses to the Israelite people in the book of Leviticus. You can read about those. There's laws about everything. It's a little bit ridiculous. Um, in fact, in our family Bible reading this last week, we've been in Leviticus, and um, my wife made this comment. There are so many laws, how could anybody even begin to remember them all to follow them? And she's absolutely right. How could you? This was really, really difficult thing. So there's 611 laws given by God in the book, uh, to Moses in the book of Leviticus. 
plus there's the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember, he brought the tablets down, he threw them and had to make them again and go back up. So there's 621 laws that the Jews were supposed to follow, and this religious leader comes to Jesus and says, pick the most important. That's pretty clear to me that what he's trying to do is trap Jesus. If Jesus doesn't answer correctly, he's going to run back to his religious friends and he's going to go, hey, I asked him this question and this is what he said and we got him, right? I mean, we can take him to prison. We can kill him. This is going to be great. And so I think that was really his motivation when he asked this question. And that's why I'm kind of amazed that Jesus even responds to this guy. But in love, Jesus does respond. And he responds when, when I would have done a couple different things. Like if I'm Jesus and I'm in that situation and this guy comes to me after a couple days of these people coming and I know they hate me and I'm tired of this. I, I, I'm like, this is one guy. You've come to me. I'm with my disciples and these other people who are following me. And there's just one of you. Like I'm going to ridicule that guy. Like I'm going to go, that's a stupid question. You know, like I'm going to put him in his place, right? We talked a few years about, I'm going to call him names. I'm going to get him to shut up. I'm going to do things so that he doesn't want to talk anymore. And he just kind of runs away. If I'm Jesus in that situation, that's what I'm doing. I mean, we're, he's outnumbered, right? Like I'm not afraid he's going to get me because there's more of us than him. If I'm Jesus, I might just refuse to answer him. Like, I don't care. I don't have to answer your question. I might just get angry with all the other nonsense that I'd had to deal with that day and, and I could have used the opportunity to retaliate. Okay, I mean, Jesus had Peter with him, right? And Peter just jumped into everything. He could have just gone, hey, Pete, take care of him. <laughs> and Peter would have just like, he'd have gone just take him outside in the, in the alley and beat him to a pulp. That's what would have happened. And Jesus could have done any of those things, but he doesn't. In love... He lets the man ask his question, and then Jesus responds. And here's how Jesus responds in, in verse 29 and following. Jesus says, the most important command is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, he was absolutely correct because in the life of the Jews, that was the number one thing that they were supposed to do. But Jesus didn't stop there. He goes on. He says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now get the last line there. There is no greater command than these. 621 commands that the Jews were supposed to follow, and Jesus boils it down to two. He says, love God and love others. There's nothing else greater than these two commands. In this moment, when Jesus is tired and he's, and he's frustrated and he knows that this guy is going to be one of them who, who pushes to have him killed in just a few days. In that moment, Jesus makes this bold statement about what's most important to God of all the things that he said. He says every one of the 621 laws the Jews follow can be boiled down to love God 
and love others. And we go, yeah, that's what the church is supposed to do, right? That's what every church is supposed to do. Love God, love others. Like we may say it differently, but that's what it comes down to. But it's not quite that easy. Because the word Jesus used for love needs to be defined. What does Jesus mean when he says, love others to this guy who was there as his enemy? Love God and love others, but how am I supposed to love them? Like what love are you talking about? What word are you using here? And so we're going to work to define that word, and I want to do that by watching this uh, video here. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like, love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards 
poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. So here's where I think we are at as we uh, look at that video and then look at what Jesus was talking about in our passage today. Love moves us toward those people and situations that we'd rather just leave. Love moves us towards the people and the situations that, that if left to myself, I, I want to just get out of that. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go away. There's conflict or, or there's trouble here. And, and so I just want to get away. But love moves us toward those situations. And as followers of Jesus, here's what we discover about love. If we're not loving like Jesus, we're not really loving at all. You can call it love. But if it doesn't look like the love that Jesus expressed, then it's not really useful. And so love doesn't run away, it runs towards. And Jesus says there's no commandment, there's nothing you can do that's greater than these two things, loving God and loving others. So if you don't get this as a believer in Jesus, you don't get it. Like, like this is the core. We're called to love God and to love others. And if we don't do that, if we don't get that, we're not really loving. So we can't really be followers of Jesus, right? We got to be doing what he did. We got to look like him. Now, honestly, most of our love, I think, and, and let me just say that for me, and, and hopefully we're somewhat similar most of my love is selfish. I do to others what I expect them to do back to me, right? And so I think we see this in the marriage relationship probably most often because we're around those people we're married, people, the person we're married to most often. Um, and so we see this, and so I'm going to do something for my spouse, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I do this, she'll do that. And then I'll get what I want. And so in our relationships, we try and manipulate our spouse to try and get them to do what we want. And, and so that's how we respond. I do 
to her what I expect her to do back to me. This is selfish kind of love. But that's not the kind of love that Jesus talked about. He said, do unto others what you would want them to do unto you, even if they never do it. You keep doing. Love does what I don't want to do. And so let's break it down and just say it like this. If love isn't costing you in your marriage relationship uh, with your children, uh, with the co-workers, the people at school, whatever, if love, this agape love that the Bible talks about, if love isn't costing you, you're not doing it right. Let me say it this way. If you never get tired because you're showing love to somebody, then you're not really loving them. We put that in maybe a marriage relationship and and go, if if in your marriage you're always receiving things from your spouse and, and, and your relationship has never been such that you're putting yourself out, you're tired, but you're doing things for them because you want to express love. If you've never felt that, you're not loving your spouse. So if love isn't costing you, you're not doing it right. And I'm not talking about money. It's not just about giving money. But if you're not ever tired because you love, there's a problem with your love, according to Jesus. And Jesus ends the interaction with the teacher of the law by saying this. He says to the teacher of the law, because he agrees with Jesus, he goes, you're right, Jesus, that's, that's right, to love God and, and love others. And Jesus responds this way. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because this man knew the scriptures, he just didn't know the Savior. And so, let me say it this way. You can show love to others without loving God. Like we see that, and there'll be people outside the church who say, well, I help people, I love them, I give to them. If somebody's in need, I help them, I stop on the side of the road. You can love others without loving God, but you will never love God if you're not loving others. Jesus defined love not as a feeling that happens to you, but as a force that emanates from you that compels you to do things that you don't really want to do, like giving a cup of cool water to a thirsty enemy or being kind to those who are being unkind toward you, like Jesus toward his lone questioner. Consider the number of times that Jesus said to his disciples things like this, are you still so dull? Jesus said that to his followers. He said this, how long must I put up with you? In another place, he said this. In fact, several times, he said, oh, you of little faith. And the reality is that that most conflict arises between those that we are closest to because we are closest to them. You're going to have the greatest conflict in your life probably with your spouse, probably with your kids, probably with the people that you work with on a daily basis or that you go to school with or the people that you're around the most, maybe some of your neighbors. And it's because we're comfortable with each other 
It's because we're around a lot that we let our guard down, that we can be more casual, and then that's usually where the trouble starts. You see, because I love this person and they love me, I can say things to them that I couldn't say to somebody else. Now, here's my favorite example, and you've probably seen it before. I remember it, and I, I do the hand gestures like in the old school days when the phone was connected to the wall by a cord. You remember those days? Some of you do. You remember how maybe you got to go back to your parents uh, when you were at home and you were a kid, and mom and dad were arguing about something, and I said this, and you said that, and rah, 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 and they're just mad, and they're angry, and they got their face all scrunched up, and the phone rings, and they go, hello? You ever do that? Why do we do that? Like, the person on the other end, that's not my... Like, I'm supposed to love you more, but I'm treating the person on the other end of the phone, who's probably a telemarketer anyway, better than I'm treating you. Why? Because I'm not afraid that you're going to leave me so I can treat you poorly. That's where some of that conflict comes from. And, And Jesus says... Love God and and love others. And often the others that we have the most conflict with are the people that we're closest to. And Jesus says, do what you don't want to do for them. When you're in conflict, remember God's command. Love me, God says, love me and love others. Love moves toward people and situations that we just as soon leave. And that's why love does what we don't want to do. So let me just ask this morning, are you considering moving away from someone you said you loved? Are you finding yourself moving away from those that you don't like or that annoy you? Or maybe a person in your life that that a few years ago or a lot of years ago you said, till death do us part, and now you find that we're moving apart because we've got different definitions of what that love is. This week, your assignment is to consider what God's love would compel you to do in every situation you're in, and then do it. So here's how this works. In, in your marriage, at home with your kids, at work with your co-workers, if there's a situation where in your mind you go, I'm just, mm, mm. You, you know what I'm talking about? That like ah. When you're feeling that, instead of moving away, move toward. Find a way to express the kind of love that Jesus talks about to that person that you'd rather just kind of strangle in that moment. Now, I don't know what that is, and I think it's going to be different in every situation and different for every person. But when you're feeling that desire to move away, instead, Find a way to move toward them. Especially, especially in your marriage. Because you're going to have those times where you feel like getting away and God's going, hey, move toward. When you're in conflict, move toward them and open up those lines again. When you want to move away, think about how you can move toward those who are irritating you, so that you might show them the same love God has shown you. We love, the Bible says, because God first loved us. We know how to love because we've received it from Him. Let's show others that love this week.
Let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you. Thank you for loving me when I'm unlovely. Thank you for always moving toward me. Even in those times in my life where I've been trying to get away from you. God, would we have that kind of of agape love that, that moves toward instead of moving away? God, would we express that in our, in our marriages, with our kids, in our relationships? It's because we, we so often, I think especially in this culture, we want to pull away from those situations that are confrontational and that are difficult. And yet you've called us to be different and to move toward those who maybe even themselves are trying to move away from us. God, would the love that you give to us be a force that emanates from us and touches the lives of others. Would you help us to love like Jesus? We ask that in his name. Amen. Hey, don't forget to stop by the table on your way out. Sign up for the Valentine's dinner. Check in on a life group. Uh, I love you. We're going to wrap up this series next Sunday. I'll see you then.